0: This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Marano.
1: Is there a better way? That's really what I'm wondering, and if so, what is it? Let's go back in history, since the advent of modern political party. It used to be that the nominees for political parties were chosen essentially not in a back room, but in a convention hall, and the party bosses from around the country would gather and they would decide among themselves who they liked. And sometimes it took them an awful long time to get there. No better example of that than the election of 1880. In the election of 1880, at least on the Republican side, the um, Republicans went in expecting to nominate Ulysses S. Grant. For a third term, not a third consecutive term, he took a break for four years and Rutherford B. Hayes didn't like the job, didn't want a second jo- second term, and the Republican leaders really weren't crazy about Rutherford B. Hayes anyway, they weren't eager to get him a second term, so most of the Republican leaders were ready to coalesce around Ulysses S. Grant, who at the time, in 1880, was not only the most popular American, but probably one of the most popular English-speaking citizens in the entire world. Still considered the hero of Epimodics. I I don't think the uh, negative aspects of his administration with respect to corruption had come out yet. But he didn't have enough votes at the convention to cinch cinch the presidency. But neither, the uh, nomination rather, neither did his other main adversary, a gentleman named uh, James Blaine. But ultimately... A dark horse came and through the convention process, I don't remember how many ballots there were, but there were many, they settled on James Garfield, who wasn't even running. He wasn't even running. He'd just been elected to the U.S. Senate, because in those days the state legislature picked the U.S. Senate. He'd just been elected to the U.S. Senate, hadn't served a day in the U.S. Senate, and they picked him as a compromise candidate to um, be the president. Same thing the With the election or the nomination of James K. Polk on the Democratic side in 1840. Um, this was the way it was done. Let's look at how it's done today. Let's say you're a fan of Ron DeSantis politically or Chris Christie or Asa Hutchinson or Vivek Ramaswamy or... Any of the other Republicans that have been a candidate for president this year, even though 49 states out of 50 have not yet voted, all of those people are no longer available as choices to you. None of them. So assuming Nikki Haley does poorly in New Hampshire, and I'll I'll discuss what I think poorly is, and assuming she again does poorly in South Carolina, she's out, okay? If she doesn't uh, put put up some decent numbers in one or both of those states, she's out. And that will mean that with the exception of Iowa, Nevada, uh, New Hampshire, and South Carolina, no one will have cast a ballot in the Republican presidential primary contest. And yet, That's who has picked the nominee, essentially these four states, if she makes it that long, which she may not. She may be out after tomorrow. And I'm just wondering, what's the solution, right? Because I think we know the people in Iowa, the people in New Hampshire, they're not really representative of the whole country. They're not representative of the whole country in terms of demographics, in terms of socioeconomic status, in terms of – you know really anything culturally religiously it's a different ball game than a good portion of the rest of the country so should Iowa and New Hampshire still play such an outsized influence in nominating our candidates if the answer's no what then is the solution and this is one of those things where i don't have an answer i just have questions a friend of mine, a former elected official, wrote to me yesterday, and he was saying uh, he was talking about the state of the primaries, and essentially he said it's crazy that after one primary, everybody's out. Essentially, no one gets to vote after just one primary. This choice is, cr- you know, crammed down our throats, and I don't know if he's a, a Trump guy or a not or not. But to, I got what he was saying. It was He was complaining about the principle. And what he was saying is that it was better in the old days. He said we were better off with the old convention system. So my question for you is what is the best way to pick presidents for both the primaries or the nominating contest if you don't like primaries – end the general election should we go back to how they did things in 1880 and 1840 and just have party bosses meet and pick the best candidates or should we have one national primary if you have one national primary then traditionally usually uh, the candidate with the most money or the most name recognition would win i'll tell you if we had one national primary in 2020 I'm not sure Joe Biden would have been nominated on the Democratic side. I think there's a scenario in which Michael Bloomberg might have spent two or three billion dollars on literally on television and on direct mail and on building a field operation and dwarfed everybody in one national primary. You really can't do that if you're going Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, or should it be just kind of clusters of little states here, little states there, little states there. Because now I think we kind of have the worst of both worlds. Now, I don't even know. I'm not a party guy. I've never been a Democrat or a Republican. So I've never gotten to vote in any of these primaries. So I don't even know. By the time the candidates get winnowed down to the general election already, there's been a significant winnowing process. So I'm curious, whatever your party preference is, whoever you like, whether it's Trump, whether it's Haley, whether you're a Democrat, Republican or Independent, What is the best way to nominate presidents? Is it this? Because I have to think that, you know, the turnout among people that turned out for the Iowa caucus, Iowa, which is a small state, my friend Curtis Lee always points out they have more pigs than people. Iowa had a 15% voter turnout in the caucus. So essentially, after 15% of one tiny state voted. We now have a choice on the Republican side of only two candidates, whereas there were almost a dozen previously. And in other years, it's been similar. It's been similar. By the time Super Tuesday comes around and a lot of states get to vote, I can't imagine there's going to be more than one candidate left in the race. So is that helpful? I don't think it is. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222 is there a better way when it comes to picking presidents or nominating presidents 800-848-9222 as far as New Hampshire goes today the first votes have already been cast There's this one tiny little town that gets to vote and um you know at midnight uh, midnight eastern they voted there's only six people there and all six of them voted for Nikki Haley That means really nothing. Uh, My prediction is, as far as the New Hampshire results goes, I think Trump wins with close to 60 percent of the vote, maybe more than 60 percent. But I think he wins with uh, around, you know, 60 percent, give or take a percentage point or two. If um, it's any tighter than, say, 10 points, if it's any tighter than, say, 55, 45 then I think Nikki Haley is going to spin that as a victory that she exceeded expectations, and she'll try to use that to compete in her own home state of South Carolina. But in South Carolina, I see her going up against a buzzsaw. I don't see any way she's going to be able to be competitive in uh, South Carolina. Well, I mean, she might be able to get a few votes. I don't see her winning in South Carolina. And then I think it's a very difficult thing For her to uh, continue to raise money after that, because I think a lot of the big money donors, especially many of those that tend to ally with Republicans, they're going to see this as throwing good money after bad and not necessarily being an investment in stopping Trump unless she exceeds expectations in either New Hampshire or South Carolina. But whatever happens, I think this is a pretty good opportunity to look at where we are in terms of how we pick presidents and is there a better way was the old convention system a better way is one national primary a better way is um you know you know just uh having one small state at a time or one state at a time a better way what do you think should it be regional maybe four you know one in the south one in the west one in the northeast one in the midwest is that the way to do it I don't know, but I'd love to hear your thoughts and your suggestions, 800-848-9222. And then if it is over, in terms of the Republican nomination tomorrow, we could chat about the Veep Stakes. But we'll do that not today because we're going to have probably two or three months of that. And then we'll get into the whole guessing game of who the the no-labels candidate is going to be because that could be interesting as well. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Let me tell you what's coming up. In just a few minutes, I'm going to be joined by Michelle DeMarco. Michelle DeMarco is an interesting person. She's vice president of university relations at California's Institute of Integral Studies. She's an award-winning author and a therapist. It really, has done a lot of things. She wrote one of the most fascinating articles that I had read about moral outrage and how it's consuming our universities and she has a fascinating answer as to what the answer to dealing with moral outrage is because whatever whatever wherever you come down on the issues relating to the Middle East or any other issues that tend to get people worked up at colleges college campuses i think you will agree that moral outrage is the rule of the day And so we're going to get into her situation and her solution for how to deal with that. I thought it was pretty creative. I read this column that she wrote in The Hill, and uh, it was one of the rare original takes that I've had, uh, that I've uh, read on this. So we'll get into that. Now, um, next hour, Judge Andrew Napolitano is going to be here, a a bright. Guy, A brilliant constitutional scholar and a man who knows civil liberties issues like the back of his hand and knows criminal justice issues like the back of his hand. So I have a long list of legal issues that I'm going to go over with him including the alec baldwin situation including the uh, umpteen number of trump cases both civil and criminal that he's involved with so uh we'll do that dr richard sakwa will be here a little bit he'll join us in um, he'll join us from the uk to talk a little bit about foreign policy and where we are with respect to the war everybody has forgotten about and then uh, we're going to go through your mail as well not your mail, but my mail, mail you've sent me. If you want to email me and get your letter read on the air, just send me an email, frank.morano, that's frank.m-o-r-a-n-o, at networks.com. That's frank.morano at com. Let me first begin by saying hello to you, Robert in Suffolk. Hey there, Robert.
0: <clears throat> Hi, Frank. I believe the electoral process is The best.
1: Well, what's the electoral process?
0: Okay. uh, The voters, after candidates are qualified to be on the ballot, uh, they have a sufficient number, et cetera, that they get to vote on whoever chooses to run in the election with the ballot system. Right. But, Ray, I mean, excuse me, uh, Robert, you have not gotten to
1: vote. In terms of who the candidate is, and by the time you get to vote, the candidate will already be decided. So what I'm saying is that's not fair to people like you who don't get a say in nominating a candidate. The choices are already so winnowed down by the time they get to you.
0: Well, people decide to run and they decide to drop out. Yeah, but again, Um, again, Robert,
1: uh, Robert, but that's the problem, right? Because we don't have a primary process that's dominated by the voters. We have a primary process that's dominated by the donors in both parties. It's not Republican or Democrat. This goes on in both parties. Uh, By the way, before you you respond, Robert, I did mention last time uh, you were on the air that I thought that you sounded a lot like – former CIA analyst Ray McGovern. So think of your response. Think of what you were going to say. Don't forget. But I want to play for the audience, Ray McGovern, who is, you know, he was a CIA officer for 30 years and he's been a guest on this show. And it doesn't matter what he's talking about here, but this is Ray McGovern. And then I want people listening to tell me if this sounds like Robert in Suffolk.
0: When Zelensky was elected president and the uh, hostilities... uh, in the area against those uh, Russian-speaking provinces of Donetsk and Lugansk when they started to heat up again. He went there, and he talked to the Nazi battalion called the Azov Battalion. Now, don't quibble about that. They, they, they fly swastikas, for right. God's sake, and they sing Nazi hymns, all right?
1: Now, I think that sounds a lot like Robert. Tony, what do you think? Is that uh, What's the consensus comparing Ray to Robert there?
2: I, I hear the similarities now. Yeah, I, I it's, mean, it's, it's funny. It's he, really strange. He's man. got
1: a history as being a, a covert guy. Maybe Robert is just another clandestine operation. Robert, are you actually Ray McGovern?
0: No, I'm not. <laughs> but it is close. I mean, I have to agree with uh, your call screener.
1: You, <laughs> should, you know what you should do, Robert? You should start. Um, setting up interviews for yourself on different radio stations across America claiming that you're Ray McGovern and then just talk about whatever it is that you want to talk about. Talk about cats, talk about, you know, whatever else. Uh, although, you know, just pitch yourself as being a Ray McGovern interview. You'll have them all fooled.
0: Uh I don't know about that. <laughs> that was funny.
1: <laughs> uh, go ahead. Give me your last thought on uh, on the primary process, if there's a better way going forward.
0: All right. Well, I believe there has to be election reform too, so that it would be nearly impossible to cheat. I've got 24 points of how the system could be improved or changed that should achieve that result. And All right. Well, unfortunately, really, write an email to you. About you should. That. You
1: should. I'd love to read that. I'm a big election reformer myself, Robert. Thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Tom in Maryland, listening on WCBM. Tom, is the way that we nominate presidents in this day and age the best way to pick a president?
0: It may not be, but it, it doesn't matter what system was used this year. Donald Trump was going to be the nominee no, no, and that's what the other candidates can.
1: Well, I agree on that, Tom. And I think that was certainly the case in 2020, 2016, you know, maybe, maybe not because it was a little bit of more of a mixed bag. But let, let's take Trump out of the equation because I agree with you. I think whatever system you want to use, there's no way it doesn't end with Trump being the nominee. But let's go back in, uh, in time to, um, you know, 2012, for instance, right? There were a lot of candidates in the race that people liked. You had uh, Newt Gingrich, you had Herman Cain, you had uh, Rick Santorum, you had a wide variety of candidates. And yet, by the time most people got to vote, the only choice for them was Willard Mitt Romney is is that and and I will tell you in 2012 and having many friends that are republicans and um you know having a interviewed a lot of republican analysts and operatives and elected officials romney did not have the kind of popular support among wide swaths of the GOP in 2012 that Trump has in 2024. But he still benefited from the same primary system because he was able to secure the big money donors early on. He could ride through the peaks and valleys, whereas Cain and Gingrich and Santorum and those other fellas, they couldn't do it. So is there a better way?
0: And that certainly wasn't the case this year because the money's interest did not want Trump.
1: Well, you're right. I mean, uh, a lot of them. Well, first of all, I, I think Trump did okay in terms of raising money, but uh, DeSantis uh, even raised more. He didn't get it. He
0: didn't get it from the the Bush, you know, machine. Well, well that's
1: that's true. That's true. But um, you know, he, he wasn't exactly, um, you know, he wasn't exactly running a pauper's campaign like he was in 2016. But your point's well taken. Is there a better way to pick presidents, though, Tom?
0: And if so, what is it? Well, we need. To, yeah, we need. Maybe we need to think about that. But uh, well, that's I, what I'm asking still, you. To think I, about. I don't think it, it's a function of the system. It was just a function of this year. Oh, by the way, I'm a former KGB agent working for Vladimir Putin.
1: Are you really? Nice. I appreciate yeah. that. Well, everybody that calls okay. me a um, a Russian stooge and a mouthpiece for Vladimir Putin now, their their confirmation, their suspicions are confirmed. Because we have former KGB agents working for Putin calling the show. You know what's interesting about Tom, and I wish I would have um, asked him this, but it's just occurring to me me now. If he's a former KGB agent and ostensibly retired, why did he keep working for Putin even into retirement? I would think either you would be a current KGB agent, you'd still be working with the KGB, or you would – Try, you know, something different. I mean, it seems like it's kind of the worst of both worlds. Is he getting paid or maybe it's a different role than when he was with the uh, KGB? Roger is in the great state of Maine. Hello, Roger.
0: Yes. Hi, thank you for taking my call. And I just wanted to talk about the uh, primaries and all that. You know, the system has
1: worked so far. So why change it? You know, the old saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, but do you think the system has worked? I mean, to me, you know, I I voted for Trump um, twice and I was a big Trump fan, especially in 2016. But I would argue that the system has produced some of the worst major party nominees ever. Right. I mean, can you really say the system is working when it's producing people like John McCain and George Bush and Willard Mitt Romney and Bob Dole? Is that really the system working? Are these, or, or you know, um, on the other side of the equation, uh, Joe Biden and John F. Kerry? Uh, are these the best of the best? Well, no, I don't think that. I think the system is flawed, and there's uh, you know security risks. So I think that's with uh, the online voting machines and all of that. I don't think the primaries and caucuses need to be changed. I think it needs to go back to uh, paper ballots and only absentee ballots for military who are injured and you know can't go vote all right well yeah roger i still think um after the first couple of states most people it would be the same result most people don't get to vote i just got an sms text message here from someone who writes should have conventions for primary then let each party put forth their best candidate let as many independent candidates as qualify by petition to get on the ballot, and then one day for the general election, mail in only for incarceration, hospitalization, and military out of country. I, I don't agree with that, but that's, you know, that's his approach, right? So he says he likes the convention system. You be the judge of what you like. 800 9222 By the way, you can find me on uh, Twitter. I still call it Twitter, at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. Robert is in Philadelphia. Hi, Robert.
3: Hi, Frank. It's good to talk to you. Man, I really love your analysis sometimes. You're as level and even a guy as I've ever met, and you don't fall for the political minutiae the way a lot of people do. Um, But I was thinking about your question about fixing it, and I don't think it's fixing it. I don't think the system's broken, but one thing you could do to tweak it to address what you were just talking about is having, if possible, like all the big primaries all of them, together within a week. You know what I mean? Whether it's later in the season or earlier, if you can have it so that most of the states get to vote for most of the candidates by by having them all, have them all within a week or something, you know what I mean? Or something like that. Just reschedule the primaries so that us later states, like we're a late state in Pennsylvania and half the guys aren't on the uh, ballot anymore by the time it gets there. All the guys suspended their campaigns or whatever. Right, right. I think
1: more than half, probably.
3: But I think you could not change the general good things about it while addressing what you were just talking about, like just changing the primary schedule. Right. Well,
1: all. look, I mean, I think it's a good thing that people get to vote. I think uh, we're. I think this is a kind of a combination of a bunch of problems here. I think the fact that these elections cost so much money and that you have to raise 50, 60, 70 million dollars in order to vote. I think that's a big part of the problem. But um, I like your solution. Well,
3: condensing it, condensing it might address that as well, you know.
1: Well, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right because at the very least you wouldn't have these candidates uh, needing to – you still have them needing to spend a lot of money on television, but you don't have them having to spend all the money that they're currently spending on uh, travel to the various states and things of uh, of that
3: nature. Uh, thanks, Robert. Maybe Rob- just short. Maybe just shorten the season. That's all. That no, was great one, Frank. Thanks. Thank
1: thanks, Robert. You know, it's interesting that he mentions that. Shortening the election season. Do you know what the election season is like? In Canada, the U.K., most Western democracies. Do you know what it is? Six weeks. Six weeks. And they're complaining that that's too long, interestingly enough. But um, there are – in America, we basically have a four-year campaign. As soon as the campaign ends, the next day, you start the election for four years from now. And I, I just think it's such a problem. I don't know how you rein that in. I don't know how you do something about it, but I do find it problematic. Hey, I don't like to do this kind of thing, but I this did give me a chuckle. This was something that uh, was shared on uh, Twitter by Senator Rand Paul because so Ra- Nikki Haley, who you know I'm, I'm no fan of. I'm sure she's a nice person, but I, it's not somebody that I could ever vote for. She was um, talking about all of the disingenuous things Donald Trump has said. This is what she said. This is just, uh, just yesterday, just a few hours ago.
2: I've seen the mail that you've been reading. And every single thing that Donald Trump has said or put on TV has been a lie. Every single thing. Check with the fact checkers. Every single thing. He says, I want to cut Social Security and raise the retirement age. I never once said that. Not once. If anything, we're going to make it solvent so that no one lives in fear. He said that I don't want to have a border wall. I never said that. I said, you can't just do a border wall. you got to do all these other things that are going to stop the what's happening at the border. He says that I love war. Quite the contrary. You don't have a husband that's in the military. Well,
1: first of all, that is true. I mean, uh, OK, so she goes on about all the things that uh, Donald Trump says that aren't that isn't true. And Rand Paul put out a very interesting tweet. Now, Rand Paul's like me. He, he has I don't think he's endorsed anyone yet, but he's never Haley. Right. And so he put out I don't know if he created this, but he shared this a very funny um PSA when Nikki Haley announced that she wouldn't be debating Ron DeSantis or participating in any debates that either Biden or Trump weren't in. So Rand Paul basically put out this this tweet that said, you know, if Nikki Haley is, um, you know, so concerned with not debating Ron DeSantis, maybe she should just debate herself because she's had so many different positions on just about every fundamental issue.
2: I would not run if President Trump... I'm Nikki Haley, and I'm running for president. I will not, not now, not ever, support raising the gas tax. Let's increase the gas tax by 10 cents over the next three years. A huge issue that I'll deal with as soon as I get there is social media. They need to verify every single person on their outlet, because, and I want it by name. I never said government should go and require anyone's names. I think China's been a really great friend of ours. Yes, I view China as an enemy. That was um, not what I intended to say. I do not think we need to pull money from the UN. The U.N., the only thing is we would defund the U.N. as much as possible.
0: When a 12-year-old child
1: in this country, assigned female at birth, says, actually, I feel more comfortable living as a boy, what
4: should the law allow the response to be?
2: I think the law should stay out of it, and I think parents should handle it. I think there should be federal involvement. You should not have any gender-altering, anything done to a child before the age of 18.
1: It's pretty telling. I mean, these are not ambiguous issues. We're not talking something like a tax reform here where maybe your positions evolve over time. These are pretty fundamental issues. But people vote for who they want to vote for. I, I got I gotta chuckle out of that. I normally don't like to share stuff like that because it's a little sophomoric and I don't like to play into the negative campaigning. But if she's going to go all around talking about anybody else being disingenuous, I think she ought to look in the mirror. All right. Somebody who I am uh, really eager to chat with is Michelle DeMarco. She has, like a lot of people, analyzed the state of moral outrage on college campuses, and she has some solutions for what can be done about it. We're going to get into them
0: straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. Side of Midnight with Frank Murano. Slow down, you crazy child. You're so ambitious for a juvenile, but then if you're so smart. Tell me why are you still so afraid? Mm. Where's the fire? What's the hurry about? You better cool it off before you burn it out. You got so much to do and only so many hours in a day. Hey. But you know that when the truth is this told, is the,
1: the sound of midnight.
0: And right Frank you over.
1: I am, uh, you know, obviously there's been so much written about the situation on college campuses, and things have been pretty bad for a little while now. People are upset. Conservatives feel, conservative students feel they're not properly represented. They feel they're discriminated against. They feel they're not given the opportunity to have things like free speech. In the wake of this Middle East situation, you are seeing all sorts of demonstrations where a lot of the people that are supportive of the Palestinians don't feel that the university leadership, which has spoken out on a lot of other issues of injustice, including the uh, George Floyd issues and many other similar issues, they feel they've been silent on what's happening in the Middle East. And conversely, you have a lot of Jewish students that genuinely feel that a chance like from the river to the sea are calls for genocide or at least some sort of anti-Semitism. There's been so much written about this. And unfortunately, not a lot of original stuff about this. You basically have a, a whole series of opinion journalism on the one hand saying what's happening on college campuses is terrible because of X or what's happening on college campuses is terrible because of Y. But the question is not X or Y. It's Y-W-H-Y. And the best and most original piece that I have read on the subject of what's going on in college campuses or on college campuses happens to be a a column that I read in The Hill and it's by someone who is pretty accomplished in a lot of different fields and that's uh, Michelle DeMarco. She's Vice President of University Relations and Chief Communications Officer at California's Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco. She's an award-winning author and a therapist. She's a clinical ethicist, a trauma researcher, specialized in moral injury. She's got a new book out. It's called Holding On to Air, The Art and Science of Building a Resilient Spirit. Michelle, thanks so much for coming on. Congratulations on the uh, San Francisco 49ers. Hey, Frank. Thanks
4: so much for having me on.
1: So, Michelle, what exactly is moral outrage and what's just people being upset? I mean, uh, college students are always quick to complain about something or or be upset about something. When does it cross the level or the Rubicon into moral outrage?
4: Well, I, you know, you have a lot I, I mean, I think this goes back to just general emotions which is that any emotion, whether it's outrage Anger, resentment, joy, anything else. These are just like normal uh, experiences for people. Um, They tell us, they're information carriers. They tell us something. So anger might tell us something isn't working the way it should. Joy might tell us something is. When it comes to moral outrage, um, this is something that we're actually seeing a lot more of these days. And it's not, that moral outrage is in and of itself, as I wrote in the piece, a problem. It's the dysregulated recalcitrant expression of it that is.
1: You write that social media is uh, one of the factors that's leading to the, the scope and expression of moral outrage that we're seeing today. Mm-hmm. Tell, me, uh, tell me what social media is doing to sort of fan the flames of moral outrage.
4: Oh, well, I mean, I am not the only person to say this. There is a ton of research. Jonathan Haidt has done a wonderful job at at putting a lot of it out there. However, um, so what we've seen is that in recent years, um, if you – so there are moral emotions like resentment, guilt, uh, disgust, um, uh, shame – um, a number of contempt. And if you are engaging these things um, online, so when you, somebody writes something that will target or or jump into any one of those emotions, um, you will see an increase in the response by 15 to 20 percent. That's new research that's out there. So, Anything that has any word in whether it's a tweet, whether it's or an X or whatever they call it these days, or you know, a Facebook post or an Instagram, anything on social media, what you are seeing is that every moral or emotional word that is used is increasing the rate of retweets and engagement by 15 to 20 percent, and that is feeding people's. Um frankly it's feeding the outrage it's fanning the flame to use an old cliche
1: so what's causing the moral outrage? uh did the all of this begin with the Middle East or was it present on college campuses before that
4: no I, to, to be honest I, I i think to be fair, this is something that is not happened you know if we're talking about the middle east, if we're talking about the latest Hamas Israel. Uh, Middle East issue that is not new. This is not new. This predates that uh, for a long time. I think what what uh, research has seen is in the last you know five years or so. Certainly during the pandemic, and certainly during some of the socio-cultural unrest, shall we say, uh, we've seen a lot of um, moral outrage. Whether that's an increase in protests, how how those protests have gone down. Um, how folks are just generally dealing with their, shall we say, challenges about expressing how they 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 feel about things. It's just like I said. It's people are not engaging in a way that has a basis in resilience, that has a basis in calm, it has a basis in resentment and all of these other things.
1: If people are just tuning, we're talking with Michelle DeMarco. Uh, her new book is "Holding On to Air: The Art and Science of Building a Resilient Spirit." So, Michelle, how do we deal with this? Uh, moral outrage is ubiquitous on college campuses. What do we do about this? What's the solution? I know you've outlined something uh, called moral mm-hmm. resilience. What is that?
4: So, not I. I did not. <laughs> I I'd love to take credit for it, but it was not my phrase. Uh, Cinder Rustin Johnson, uh, uh, who is uh, at uh, Johns Hopkins, she was the one that I originally coined this phrase. Having said that, it's 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 not that this is a new concept. Resilience is something that we've been talking about for a long time. In when it comes to moral resilience, it really is, um, you know, about how we are addressing specifically. The nature of decision making when it comes to values, um, at how people are dealing with difficult challenges that uh, you know uh, basically upset their uh, their values, their uh, ways of being in the world, and how they're expressing those things. So, and I think the. Expression is one of the things that, that's super important. In, you know, in social media, you can just fire off something right, to right. anybody at any time, and you don't have to see them. You don't have to actually be responsible for the thing that you said. You can just fire it off. Um, that is not moral cor- courage. That's just, you know, uh, sounding off. Um, I
1: I can tell you, Michelle, since doing this show, not a day hasn't uh, gone by that I have not been on the receiving end of at least (laughs) one social media broadside that I thought was uh, more than a bit unfair. So I I totally get that. Hey, uh, so tell me about your new book, Holding On to Air, The Art and Science of uh, Building a Resilient Spirit. You certainly have a a diverse background, therapist, clinical (laughs) ethicist, trauma researcher, and now uh, with the uh, the vice president president of University Relations and chief communications officer at the California Institute of Integral Studies. How have these experiences influenced your perspective on resilience and informed your new book, Holding On to Air?
4: Well, first of all, thanks for bringing that up. And second of all, I think the biggest thing uh, was the fact that uh, I'm a three-time heart attack survivor um wow. i had uh yeah <laughs> uh so um i basically i've always been in you know from a young age i was interested in the, the big ex- existential questions of life um and you know i decided at one point to go and study religion and theology and ethics and psychology and say You know, because I was interested in what essentially is the human condition. Um, And I spent a lot of time (laughs) looking at all this stuff through um, an academic lens. And also, I did a program and worked for a long time as a therapist. And then on the heels of graduation, I basically, within about six months after graduating, Uh, I woke up one morning feeling like an elephant was standing on my chest, and I was 33 years old, and I had uh, no reason for not being able to breathe when I woke up that morning, and um, I ended up having two heart attacks in a week's time, and... Uh, I can talk. You know, you tell me how. You know what you want. Which which hole you want to go down, or well, let's, or let's talk you about want to go down, but.
1: let's talk about that metaphor. Um, holding sure. on to air. What what does that yeah. mean? What what does that mean? Holding on to air.
4: So the reason I named the book what I did was because holding on to air. Uh, th- this book is essentially about uh, building a resilient spirit. And it's essentially about when the rug gets pulled out from underneath your life and you go falling to the ground and you're in the fetal position, which happens to basically all of us at some point in our life, because none of us get out of, of the difficulties of grief or challenge or meaningful loss or meaningful adversity. Um, at some point, you know, we all face meaningful challenge. Um, And when we do, the question is, what do we do with it? And holding on to air is what you try to do when you realize that uh, suffitude has happened, you know, in life, and that you need to Uh, you're trying to regain what you had before this whole situation happened. And you realize that you can't do that. And so there's an analogy, which is trying to grasp, hold on to air. You can't do. So when you are in uh, a situation that has meaningful adversity, you are clamoring, trying to do all kinds of things, but you can't necessarily grab onto it. So, Holding on to error is, on the one hand, what people try to do when they try to get back what they've lost. When they've lost something that is meaningful, whether that is a relationship, a pet, a a job, you know, finances, loss of faith, you know, uh, existential crisis, hope, moral compass, whatever that is. Um, however, it's also what we do. At every moment of our life, when we are literally processing air for our body. And so there's a very much a a bodily somatic aspect to how we deal with resilience Mm -hmm. that can help us move forward. That, frankly, not a lot of people are talking about. Uh, Everybody's talking about positive psychology. Just think happy thoughts.
1: I think this is such uh, a valuable thing for people to be hearing, not just right now, and not just in the context of uh, college campuses, but it just in general. Michelle, thank you for the uh, the time this morning. Appreciate you staying up late. Best of luck uh, with the book. Best of luck avoiding any future heart attacks.
4: Thanks.
1: Thank you. Michelle DeMarco, if you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight. Other Side at Midnight with Frank Morano
3: In the still of the night, as I gaze out of my window, at the moon in its flight, my thoughts all stray to you. In the still of the night While the world is in slumber or the times without number, baby When I say The
1: great Frank Sinatra singing in the still of the night. Um, this is a birthday bumper music selection from uh, my friend, the great Joe Sebelia, who is celebrating his birthday today. He invited me, uh, he invited Rachel, uh, my wife Rachel and me to his birthday party on Saturday night. He did a karaoke thing. He's a pretty good singer in his own right. Unfortunately, because uh, both my wife and my son were under the weather, we were not able to make it, but I trust they had a good time and hopefully all of Joe's birthday wishes come true. All right. Now, a lot to get to over the course of the next three hours, and we will. If you have comments, you can do so. 800-848-9222. First of all, I'm looking around at the studio here, and our staff is dropping like flies. I get the call from our operations director, Kevin, yesterday afternoon, and it's never a great situation when the operations director calls when you're not expecting it. It's never, hey, Frank, I just want to let you know uh, you're getting a $50,000 raise and, and uh, all sorts of other great things. That, that's never the call you get as a surprise. So he starts the call by saying, hey, uh, you have an interesting staff situation today. <laughs> he says, Matt Blaze, I don't mean to laugh, but uh, it's kind of funny the way he framed it. He says, Matt Blaze's doctor Is not letting him work tonight or tomorrow night. And my first thought was, wow, this must be a a popular doctor. If he's recommending not working to people, I'm sure he's got a line out the window. Maybe this is how my pediatrician can rebuild his uh, his practice in the light of the recent headlines. Then he says, oh, and Elias, and this is the first I heard of this, Elias still has COVID. Now, nobody told me Elias has COVID. I'm seeing this guy every day. Somebody, I don't know, thankfully, I always keep my distance. But um, nobody told me he had COVID. Somebody could have mentioned something. Hey, were you aware, Tony, that uh, Elias had COVID?
2: Yeah. um, He texted Matt and I um, either either Friday or Saturday said that he was diagnosed with COVID.
1: And. Neither of you thought that I, I thought know, you knew. Maybe no, Frank would be interested. You know?
2: I, I thought you knew. All right. Now, yeah, so that's okay. Well, I g-
1: hope he feels better soon. Um, how are you feeling? I'm you're, fine. You're the last man standing yes, here. You I, and I'm me fine. both. Yes, if I'm something fine. happens to either of us, forget about it. You're the you're the designated survivor at yes, this point.
2: If, if something happens to you and I, down goes Frazier. That's right. Down and, uh, goes Frazier.
1: Uh, is going to start have to host the show. Is that your name? Is that, am I correct? Corralos. Yes. It's like Carlos with a K. Welcome and uh, thank you to Broadway Bill Lee, who's helped us out today, but see that's that's the toughness of this show. We just we take a licking and we keep on ticking. I love it. All right, big news on a personal level here. I was able for the first t- time in a long time. I was able to finish an entire book yesterday. Now keep in mind, I used to read books, you know, every month. I think I started this book when uh, Barack Obama was president. That's the pace that I'm reading at now. That was a lengthy book. I love this book. It's um, if you, Robert Greene, who's probably best known for the 48 Laws of Power and uh, that's the 33 Strategies for War. he This book, it's called um, The Laws of Human Nature. I absolutely love it. And I, I absolutely loved it. And the exciting thing to me about finishing a book, I'll tell you, after the top of the hour, your influence counts. Use it.